Wool was king, man. That was everything. If you could maintain your numbers, you were ahead of the game. Welcome in to Like a Man. I'm your host, Miles Nielsen. On today's show, I brought on Brad Agard. He's a veteran sheepman there from Fountain Green, Utah. And he discusses with us the sheep industry and just talks about what they do, how it's done, and how to do it right. This one was near and dear to my heart. I loved recording it. It was really fun, very nostalgic for me. Let's give it a listen. I have here with me Brad Agard, who is a well-respected sheep man from Fountain Green, Utah. And Brad, how long have you been running sheep for, and what were you the president of? I've run sheep most of my life, and a past president of uh, the Jericho Wool Growers Association. And what generation of sheep man are you? Well, fourth, I think. Andrew J. and James Edward and my dad and myself. So four generations. And how is it the first one got started? Andrew James uh, bought a, a black ewe and she had twins almost every year. That's how it got started. He traded a watch for her. And then it escalated from there. And uh, sheep were a good animal. Uh, you only had to maintain your numbers because wool was king, man. Artificial fibers didn't come into being like nylon, rayon, and that kind of stuff until after the Second World War, I think. And what you had was two types of natural fibers, wool, cotton, and silk, I guess. So wool was, what do they call it, a strategic commodity, okay? And uh, what passed down to John Edward. Now, John Edward was Andrew J.'s son and my grandpa, and Vance was his son, and then I'm his son. And uh, by the way, Miles, your great, great, great grandfather, Peter Jacobson, not your grandpa, Peter, but his grandfather, is mentioned as as one of the founding members of uh, Fountain Green Wool Growers and later on the Jericho Wool Growers. So you mentioned that you were the president of the Jericho Wool Growers and just talking about it now with the founders of Jericho Wool Growers. Why don't you tell us what Jericho is and why it's so significant? Okay, it's about 25 miles west of Nephi, Utah. At one time, 107,000 sheep sheared there in 1933. That was a high. And by the time I grew up, uh, there, there were about seven herds shearing there. We brought them in and we'd draw lots to begin with, for place in line to shear. There was a siding there where uh, the old steam engines took water on. 
that was on the Union Pacific Railroad. There was a big water tower, and we used to play on it when we were kids. And there was a shearing shed and a wool shed and a cook shed where they cooked food for the shears. And until I started to have to work, it was a magical time for us kids. The things, big things were happening. Uh, all the herds coming and going, turning out. <laughs> and then when I heard I had to work, uh, big enough to work, uh, that all changed. But it was still a magical place. So Jericho was the junction where all the wool growers were coming out from the West Desert. They'd go there, shear their sheep, and then they would, from there, take their sheep up into the mountains. But real quick, before we go on that route, how much wool would you guys shear uh, when you were shearing sheep? Uh, that's a good question, Miles. Uh, I, I think about 10 pounds to the fleece and about 30 fleeces to the sack, wool tromping. So that would be 300 pounds. To begin with, we'd have to load those wool bags on the train. And boy, that was a task. In the heat of the early spring, it was a sweaty, dirty work. And uh, I remember we'd have to have help. And, and that was probably low. Probably those bags weighed more like a 350. And we'd load them on the crane car. And then uh, they took the wool shed. Then we uh, proceeded to load them on trucks. And the railroad, frankly, didn't want to mess with that little of uh, a clip anymore. And just for the record, I wish that I could cut my hair and lose 10 pounds. But anyway, just real quick, I want to explain to the listeners. So how this would work is these sheep men would drive their sheep herds out to the West Desert in Utah in the winter where the weather isn't as harsh. And they would pasture out in the West Desert for the winter. And then they would bring those sheep to Jericho, shear them. And then from there, they would take them and herd them into the mountains for the summer where it's a lot cooler and there's a lot more vegetation for them. They would go there, lamb, and then when it gets to fall, they would herd them back before the weather got harsh again to Jericho and then from Jericho out to the West Desert. And Brad, why don't you explain to us the route your family would take from the West Desert to the mountains? What Miles would spend 12 days on the trail to get to Jericho. In the very early days, and I was in on those trails, we'd go to Jericho, get shorn, and go uh, about three, four days over Water Hollow to Highway 89 until it merges with Highway 6, then go up Highway 6 drop a bunch off to Lamb at Tucker, a railroad siding there, and five miles below Soldier Summit, and then would take another bunch up to Soldier Summit to Lamb. Uh, we were high country lammers at that time. 
then would spend a month lambing the sheep and we'd uh, cross Highway 6 and then take them up White River. We'd finally end up on the summer range and that's uh, the Strawberry Reservoir on the south and west side. And that's the route we'd follow. And the reverse, of course, being that we, uh, about half the state, we trailed at uh, 1.0 miles. And how many people would this take to herd these sheep from all the way from the West Desert, like you said, halfway across the state to Strawberry Reservoir? How many people would that take? Uh, On the highway, it took at least, you know, you have to have a flagman behind and a flagman ahead to be legal, and then uh, one herder at least behind. So three men herding all these sheep halfway across the state. That is amazing. But things have changed where sheepmen will use semis to move their sheep over long distances. Is that what you guys were doing? It depended, Miles. Uh, Sometimes we'd go trail them back down to Strawberry, and then if that got too dicey, if the weather got too bad, we'd run from there uh, to the railroad corral and load them on the semis and ship them right out to Jericho again. And the snow typically wasn't as bad out there. You were entering the, the east side of the West Desert, and uh, that's where the trail began, and then we'd trail them on out. And a time or two, we've trucked them right on out to the West Desert. But there's troubles with that, Miles. You, uh, you run the chance of uh, getting some green halogenin in your sheep. And that's a deadly, deadly poison. And uh, unless you uh, ease them onto it, it'll kill them. That makes sense why you would ease them out to the West Desert from Jericho, because you could ease them onto that rather than taking them right out there and having them eat it and get sick. Um, Speaking of, real quick, losing sheep, what is the worst encounter you had with a predator getting into your sheep? What's the worst thing that's ever happened? The worst predation that I had in one night was on the Strawberry Ridge up at the head of Squaw Creek. This was the day after lamb day. And I rode up and just after daylight, I don't know what kind of, I know it was a cougar, but how many of them there were. Anyway, he killed 67 head. And that was a body count. I counted them there. He just milled them around and milled them around. All the vegetation stripped bare. It was uh, tough to see, you know. And I've, I've heard worse with those cats. I've heard uh, John Winch down at the mouth of top of Salina Canyon. He uh, lost 100 head plus in one night, one night. And I believe it. But I lost 67, and that was a body count. That was, uh, <laughs> made you sick, Miles. Made you sick. And then one time up at uh, the Soldier Summit, I found a half a dozen killed. And there was this big, fat, fat ewe 
was laying on her back and flat on her back. And I could see her legs wiggling. So I rolled her uh, against my leg. And it was like once they'd got her down, she wasn't fun anymore. You know, once they'd rolled her on her back, she was no fun anymore. So they went on to the next one. (laughs) It's odd. And how many head did you have again? Uh, About 1,200. Wow. Well, I guess in that case, for that fat you, her eating habits saved her life rather than hindered her life. Um, I also couldn't imagine stumbling across that carnage. And I know that it's hard for farmers when they lose animals because it's your lifestyle. So I couldn't imagine. Um, Changing gears here. In your lifetime, what are the big changes that you've seen in the industry overall since you started until now? The wool itself is a just a byproduct of lamb. Lamb's everything. And that didn't used to be. Before I was, uh, oh, even when I was a kid, wool was still worth something. The Jericho wool growers still would breed for these tight wool, rambolate type fine wool, you know, the ones that you have to shear the eyes once, twice a year. Wool was king, man. That was everything. If you could maintain your numbers, you were ahead of the game. Just the wool alone could keep sheepmen and prosperous. And uh, now the reverse is true. Now wool's a byproduct of the lamb. The lamb is king. That is very interesting, and I have friends who are in Australia, New Zealand, and they also have a lot of sheep and a lot of wool, and it's interesting to see how things do change and shift and evolve. Hopefully, because it is a strategic commodity, it's never lost, and this trade is never lost, and this industry that's there in central Utah is never lost. So. To wrap things up, I'm going to ask you the most important question yet, and that is, what is your favorite thing about Lamb Days? And for all of you wondering what Lamb Days is, Lamb Days is a celebration that's been happening since the 1930s when these wool growers were, like Brad was saying, very prosperous. They had a festivity, and it's on every Friday and Saturday of the third Friday and Saturday of July. And it's filled with a parade. They have a bunch of games at the park leading up to it. A lot of people come into town. It is a big deal and everybody loves it. And there's a lot of sheep meat that's being eaten. They have a mutton fry on the Friday night. They roast lambs in a lamb pit and they have lamb sandwiches the next day. They have a big wool truck that comes in and they just celebrate everything about wool in the lamb industry. So... That being said, Brad, what is your favorite thing about Lamb Days? Just the general atmosphere, the program, and Bailey Girls singing. Oh, yeah, the Bailey Girls, they put a really nice touch on it there at the park singing. Um, What about lamb sandwiches? Being a sheep herder, what's your thoughts with those? How do they really taste? All the lamb sandwiches are delicious and great, but we have lamb of our own, so that's not as special to us, you know. Yeah, the lamb sandwiches are short. 
for anybody who's not tried lamb, that that is a treat. Oh yeah, huge, huge treat. I love them every time I have them. I look forward to them. I miss them, I should say, now that I live in Arkansas. But anyway, Brad, thanks so much for coming on. This has been a treat for me. I've learned a lot and I appreciate you taking the time and teaching us all about Jericho and the wool growers of Fountain Green. And that's a wrap. Okay. Thank you, Miles. Let us not underestimate the importance of tradition. It's a pattern that can be followed. Yes, there may be some traditions that we shouldn't pass along. There may be some stupid things that were done, but those things that are good, like hard work and going out and doing things, those types of traditions should be carried on. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We are going to end this one with another manly mystery sound. Let me know if you can guess it. 